So this morning we're going to be opening back up into the book of Mark. And actually I found that this uh, passage we're going to be in today fit pretty well with uh, what we've already been talking about and discussing. So Mark chapter 4 and verse 1. Praise God last night as I was praying and seeking his guidance on how to teach this passage. He actually kind of cut my sermon in half. So I, uh, otherwise I'd be fire hosing you guys with pretty much a whole bunch of stuff. So um, it's going to be good. I'm actually really excited about what the Lord's put on our heart for this morning. So um, if you guys have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4, verse 1, you can follow along. I will read it for us. It says this, Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came up and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun arose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell along among the thorns and the thorns grew up around it and choked it and it yielded no grain and other seed fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those are the ones along the path. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes up and takes away the word that was sown in them. And these are the ones that were sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while, then when tribulation or persecution arise, On the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Father God, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would give us this day our daily bread, Lord. Forgive us our trespasses and help us forgive those who have wronged us, Lord. Lord, I pray that your will would be done in our hearts as it is in heaven. Lord, that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to receive the word that we have this morning. So would you bless the reading and teaching of your word, I pray. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. And the church said, Amen. So this parable is also found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It's one that many of us, if you have grown up in church, you've probably heard it before. And as we teach through parables, I think there's a, it's really good to get some context, some backstory a little bit, step into the story. And to do that, let's turn back in our Bibles uh, just a couple of pages to Mark chapter 1 to see what's going on here. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be starting, let's go to verse 7 of Mark chapter 1. We have John the Baptist comes into the picture, and he is this wild-looking man who 
He spends a lot of time out in the desert, so his skin is probably absolutely just wrinkled and dark, and he's just wild. He's eating locusts and honey, um, and he starts teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he was telling people to repent and be baptized. And he was baptizing many people. He drew large, large crowds. And this is what he said in verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then only a couple verses later, about seven verses later, in chapter 1, verse uh, 15, And Jesus comes into the picture after being baptized. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are some powerful words. This is a generation of people. If we go back 2,000 years to this Jewish context, these people for hundreds of years had been expecting who? They'd been expecting their Messiah, the Savior, the one who was going to free them from the Roman oppression, the one who was going to rebuild and claim his throne. He was going to take the seat of his forefather David, who was of the lineage, the great king of Israel, and his kingdom would not end. That's the hope. That's the hope that these men and women had at this time. And when they heard this, they heard this talk of the kingdom of God and the time being fulfilled, you had to imagine these people, there's a lot of excitement welling in with them, and this is why Jesus had such a large following. That's why when Jesus taught with authority, he taught differently than anybody else. People followed him. Such that when he was at his headquarters in Capernaum, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, um, a cool little town, people would come to hear him, not just from the, the town of Capernaum, who everybody would come to hear when Jesus taught, but it would also be people from all the surrounding region of Galilee and even Judea, the region just south. And Jesus was creative. He would be on, on, the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is, is a beautiful backdrop. And he'd start teaching, and this crowd would gather so much so that he would have no room anymore. You picture this big old lakefront picture here where Jesus is standing on the shore. People are crowding around him. The backdrop behind them is going to be some rolling hills with all sorts of farming, all sorts of grain fields, all, you, you name it. It's back there. So Jesus looked out a little bit creative, and in my time, I've seen, I've seen some interesting pulpits, but I've never seen a floating one. <laughs> Not yet, at least. And Jesus was, he was an interesting guy, so he would push out on this fisherman's boat, and right off the shore, he'd be teaching from the boat, and there'd be a crowd of people gathered on the shoreline. That's where we're at this morning. That's where we pick it up, and I imagine Jesus probably had some people that were concerned about his method of teaching. Shouldn't teaching be done in the temple? Isn't that what it's done? Isn't that where it's done? Shouldn't it be behind a real pulpit, Jesus? Shouldn't you be in front of a large scroll and just reading it through like all the other teachers of the day did? Others might have had their concerns like, what if somebody drowns? There's a large crowd here and we're all pressing up against the water to hear Jesus. Others might think, well, there's mosquitoes down there, Jesus. How could you do it by the the Sea of Galilee? Yet there was something captivating about Jesus that people had to be there to hear him. And in verse 1, he says, And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into this boat, sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside him on the sea, or on the, on the land. People from all over. You know, so it was an interesting backdrop, a beautiful backdrop. If you've ever seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee, it's absolutely gorgeous. 
and he's out there floating on the water, preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, teaching in these stories, these parables. So I have to, we have to ask the question. Jesus often taught in parables, yet even his closest disciples, his closest followers, the closest group to him didn't understand his teaching. It was an interesting teaching, but it was, it was an odd teaching to teach in the, in the form of parables. So Jesus would talk to these loud crowds about farmers, about seed, about birds. And you're kind of like, okay, what's, what's he getting at? It's like, okay, Jesus, we understand farming. This, this culture back then, they understood farming. That was their, their lifestyle. There was farming, there was fishermen, there was, that, that's how they lived. They understood a farmer throwing seeds out there. What was he getting at? And oftentimes, parables are misunderstood. And I would say oftentimes, parables are mistaught. I'd say a lot of times we, we've heard some very obscure meanings where people will take these parables and pick them apart, like word by word, and start putting meanings onto different things that really aren't there, and it's not the root, but that's not the way that the original audience heard it. Because Jesus' teaching wasn't usual. What was this all about? So I imagine after Jesus taught this particular parable and gave no explanation to the crowds, it's interesting, isn't it? He gave no explanation to the crowds. He taught this, this story of the farmer and the seed and the birds and then gave no explanation to the crowds. So you might have had farmers that went away from that crowd thinking this. So he's telling me I need to be more careful in the way that I cast my seed. I've been wasting a whole lot of seed. Man, Jesus, that was so good. The politician might have thought this. Well, he's telling me that I need to begin a farm education program so I can teach farmers how to cast their seed more effectively. This can be my re-election campaign. The newspaper reporter might have seen Jesus teach this and heard Jesus and, and, and thought this. Jesus is telling me that there is a great story here about a bird problem. <laughs> and I need to write this story. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to print really well. People are going to buy it all over the place. So there's this bird problem and... Then there might have been the entrepreneur next to him that heard Jesus teach this and thought, man, I think Jesus is encouraging me. I need to come up with an idea to, to lace up some string and some stringers of the field so the birds don't come down and eat the seed. You might have had the entrepreneur that came and thought, oh, I have this great formula for some, for some manure and, some, and just some new soil that these farmers, they need this fertilizer that I have because they're doing it all wrong. So that's what I'm saying, is that there could be a lot of takeaways from this story. A lot of different people from different backgrounds hearing Jesus 2,000 years ago can walk away and completely get a different story, completely have a different response to him's teaching. Why, why do I make, make that a point this morning? Well, today we have a wealth of resources. If you've ever been on the internet, there are different commentaries on just about every single verse of the Bible, and these parables have multiple of, like just so many different teachings on them. It's, it's incredible. A lot of them are good, and yet I've heard a lot of teachers, especially in, in, churches, that, uh, in churches that don't follow the teaching of the Word of God as Jesus taught it, and they teach it wrong. So what is a parable? Let's, just, let's go back to the basics this morning, church, if we're okay with that. What is a parable? A parable is a practical story, often framed as a simile. So if we go back to English class, what's a simile? It's something that is compared to like, like or as. You guys got that. 
like or as. The parable usually illustrates, it always illustrates a spiritual truth or idea. And it's kind of this idea, parable, like the, the original wording to it is almost to set alongside of. So as you're almost setting alongside a, a truth of life, a truth that we understand next to a spiritual reality. So that's what a parable is. How do we understand parables? Here's practical advice for you as you read and study parables this, this coming up week, as I'm going to encourage you to. As you read parables, listen from the hearer's perspective, the original audience, try to step into their shoes, listen from their perspective, look for the main point, and let that truth change your perception. Perspective does matter with parables because what they hear would stand, and what would stand out to them, what kind of emotions would arise when they heard certain words, like you have parables of the Good Samaritan. That one's been taken out of context many times. What would come to mind, what kind of emotions would arise at the, in, the, in the Jewish mind when they heard the word Samaritan? Not good things. Disgust, you have all, yeah, you name it, all sorts of things. So it's good to put ourselves into their shoes. It's also good because certain parables, it's, it's, it can be hard to explain to certain people. What do I mean by that? If you are trying to tell people in of Africa where there's never been snow that Jesus wants to wash your sins away and make you white as snow, would that make any sense? No. If we in Valley Center wanted to tell somebody that lived in a city about our complaint about having to drive into town 20 minutes to go get groceries and then forgetting milk and getting stuck behind somebody slow on the way home, they wouldn't understand, would they? Context. Or ice cream, actually. Yeah, it's warm. <laughs> By the way, I think the AC might be out. Melanie mentioned that. So if it gets warm in here, it might just be the Holy Spirit, but we're going to be praying for the AC too. But you see, their context does matter. Context is king here when we're reading with par- any parables. So Jesus taught in parables... Why? Because he wants us to change our perception or our perspective. The whole point of parables is to challenge the way that we think about life, the way that we think about spiritual realities that affect us. So as we study this this week and next week, I, I, I encourage you to open your heart up and your mind up to, what is God challenging me with? Because that is the whole point. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to challenge the way that we think about something. Why do we have parables? Why not just give the main point right off the bat, Jesus? Why not just get right to the point? Because he could, right? He knew, he knew the hearts of those who were listening. Why not just get right to the point? Why not just dig right into it instead of telling this, this story? That's why the disciples asked. Jesus, why don't you just get to the main, the main point? What is the main point, Jesus? We still don't understand. Jesus' answer for us gives us two purposes for parables. If you guys go to verse 10 in chapter 4. Two answers or two purposes for the parables. Verse 10 says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. First point 
with this? What, what's the purpose of parables? Jesus was revealing truth. Jesus was revealing truth to those who believed in the mysterious. Some of your Bibles might say the secret of the kingdom of God. Others might say the mystery of the kingdom of God. Do we have some of those out there? It depends on your translation. They're, they, they're used interchangeably here. To you it has been given to know the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. Some of your Bibles might say the kingdom of heaven. Those are also used interchangeably here. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Jesus was revealing truth to those, this first audience, the disciples, who were believing in the mysterious. For the disciples, to them, it was to be given to know the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God or heaven. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? I have to confess, when I was in my freshman year in college, I found this uh, group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They were an on-campus ministry that reached out to the, the college students, and every, every year they would host a big old retreat during our spring break at Catalina Island. And during that spring break, they would have what's, what was called Mark Camp. And so we're sitting at Catalina Island looking over the beautiful ocean and reading through the book of Mark. And as soon as we got, during that week of study, as soon as we got to this particular verse, the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God, everybody wanted to know. There was so much anticipation in us, and of course, our, our teacher, our staff member, he, he just kept driving it on and on and on. We, had, we were like, what is the answer? What is the secret? And why is it a secret? What is the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God? Secret is something hidden in the Old Testament that was made clear, that was made known in the New. In the, in the Bible, a, a mystery or a secret isn't something that you can't figure out. But it's something that you would not know unless God revealed it to you. A mystery or secret in the Bible is something that you could not figure out, or that you could figure out, but you won't understand it, you won't know it unless God reveals it to you. There was no secret or mystery uh, to this audience that God was going to send a Messiah. That wasn't the mystery. It wasn't that God was going to send a Messiah. It had been promised. It, 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 in the Old Testament, it had been promised many times that God was sending a Messiah, a Savior. That wasn't, that wasn't the secret or the mystery these people were after. The secret was what kind of Messiah God would send. Would it be the kind of Messiah that they expected? Would he be the Messiah that conquered? The mystery is that, no, the Messiah conquered, not through politics, not through politics. He didn't conquer through social justice or through force, through starting a war with the Roman Empire. No. How did he conquer? Through selfless love, putting himself on a cross in place of my sins and your sins. How did he conquer? By the sacrificial death. That's the mystery of the kingdom of God. For those believing in Jesus, his disciples, those who were trusting in him, those who believed that he was the promised king, they could understand that. Jesus explained it to them. Jesus made it known to them. And I will, I will challenge you guys, as you read and study the scriptures and spend time with Jesus, spend time in prayer, spend time meditating upon the scriptures, God will reveal things to you that you did not previously know in the scriptures. Amen? That's what he does. For those who believe in Jesus and trust him, that he is the promised king, 
The parables are there to help them understand what kind of king he was and what kind of kingdom he was ushering in. The parable is to help understand what kind of king Jesus is and what kind of kingdom he's ushering in. Because people were very confused about Jesus' identity and what the kingdom of God was really going to look like. This is evidence, I would say, of God's mercy. Does God have to reveal anything to us? No. Did God have to send his son to save us? No. He could have done it any other way. It's evidence of God's mercy that we can understand the kingdom of God, that we can be part of the kingdom of God. You see, this says, to you it has been given. By who? Who gave it? Who gave the disciples and us the ability to understand the kingdom of God? God did. Amen? God did. Nobody else did. It was an act of mercy on the part of God to do that. Similarly, we can be confused because we, as those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as King, we see forgiveness in the cross. Others see foolishness in it. Amen? Why? It's not because we're smarter, we're better, we are more theologically inclined or more religious or more humble. No, it's because God was merciful to me and he's merciful to you that we could understand and we could partake and be part of the kingdom of God. Amen? That we could experience the salvation that's found in Jesus. When you believed in Jesus as king, he opened your eyes and your ears to understand this great mystery of salvation that we now hold so dearly too. We, have, we, we do. We celebrate it. That God has saved us. We were once lost and now we're found. Once blind, but now we see. We were once in darkness, but now we're in the light. Matthew 13, verse 16 and 17 says this, But blessed are you, your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. But assuredly, I say, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Isn't that interesting? All in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus finally came. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here right now. Everybody expected the kingdom of God now to be fulfilled. The disciples even thought that was the case. They asked, who's going to sit on the throne on the right side and the left side? Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? Besides, besides you, of course, Jesus. But who, which one of us is the greatest? They thought this as an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God is not of this world. Amen? It is not of this world, but it is in this world. Many people long to see it and hear it. We have not only seen and heard it, but we have the entirety of the kingdom of God written out for us, right in our laps. How blessed are we that can understand this? I'll say you guys are intelligent people. If you're confused about anything in the Bible, you can figure it out. You can read it. You can study it. You can ask good questions. Why does Jesus teach in parables? He uses parables as what? A doorway. He taught in parables to these crowds as a doorway. His listeners stood at the door and heard him. If they weren't interested, they stayed on the outside. If they were interested, they could step in and ask some questions. It's a doorway that we, we need to offer to all those who don't believe that they need to hear the word of God, amen? If we keep our mouths shut, who's going to hear? Who's going to believe if they don't hear? What about those who, though, reject Christ as the Messiah? What about those who stayed on the outside, who heard him from a distance, who were on that, that seashore next to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and heard him, 
But they stayed on the outside. They went home and they were that farmer that thought, I need to sow my seed a little bit better. Well, the truth is those who rejected Christ, one good example would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the time, those who heard him but they did not hear or where they weren't listening to understand. They were listening to pick apart and to challenge him. They didn't want to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. So Jesus, the, the second point of this is Jesus was concealing truth from those who denied the obvious. Jesus had been going around teaching and healing and casting out demons. Jesus was concealing truth from those who were denying the obvious. It was obvious. Jesus' teaching was with authority. He had large crowds following him. He loved people. He brought the children close to him. He healed people. He casted out demons. He cared for people. And yet still they didn't believe in Jesus' miracles, his healings, his casting out of demons. They didn't want to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. One commentator said, Jesus didn't use parables to blind people, but because they were blind. Jesus didn't use parables to blind people, but because they were blind, he used them. Therefore, Jesus used the parabolic method not in order to blind them, but in order to make them look again, not in order to prevent them from coming to forgiveness, but in order to lure them towards a new attention. Jesus taught with these stories to get our attention, to get the attention of those who were lost in their sins. Those who were on their way to hell, if you will. He wants to get their attention. He wants them to think these things out. And I encourage you this morning, if you are here and you're hearing this for the first time, think these things out. Is Jesus the Messiah that you've been looking for? So we have two different purposes for the parables. Jesus revealing truth and Jesus concealing truth to those who denied the obvious. In verse 13, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? This parable is um, actually an important parable, and this is why I'm breaking this sermon into two, actually, because this parable is considered by Jesus the key to understanding other parables. So if this parable is the key which unlocks, in our mind, other parables, we really need to understand it, amen? That's why I wanted to spend a little more time on it. This is the key to understanding other parables, and there's going to be other parables coming up in the next couple weeks that we are going to be studying as well. All of these parables have to do with what? The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, if your translation says that. So what, then, if they all have to do with the kingdom of God, because Jesus will say as a simile, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like fill in the blank. He'll talk about seed. He'll talk about those who sow the seed. He'll talk about other things the kingdom of heaven is like. So the question has to be asked, what is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) The kingdom of God is a topic that spans the entirety of scripture. So I had to actually borrow a definition from a pastor that I respect um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, David Platt, who is much wiser than I am, and he could actually boil down the, the definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in one sentence, which I could not do for the life of me. But I love his definition is this. It is the redemptive rule or reign of God in Christ. I'll say that again. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the redemptive rule or reign of God in Christ. Those are important words there. It's saying that God has the authority and he has the sovereignty over everything. 
In one sense, you could say that the kingdom of God is everything in this world, in this universe, if you will, because the scriptures teach that. You know, it's funny, as I was getting to this point in my, in my notes, this song kept ringing in my head from Sunday school when I was a kid getting taught the word of God as, as a little, ta- little, little guy, and I'm sure this is still sung here. That he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay, you guys, you guys remember that one. Okay, it's not just me. I was, I was going crazy with these children's songs in my head. But what's crazy is that there's a lot of great doctrine in that song. There's good theology in that song. It is true. God created everything. There's nothing that is made that wasn't made by him. He's got it all in his hand. It's a cheesy song with sound doctrine. I don't know if there's, are there any other lyrics to that song? I don't, I don't think there are, but it's good. We'll stop there. It's, <laughs> See, this isn't the way that the kingdom of God was used in this passage, though. It wasn't the encompassing everything in the whole world and universe idea of the kingdom of God. Not yet. See, here in this text, it's describing how God is asserting his authority and in the redemption of sinners through Christ, the promised Messiah. Messiah. I'll say that again. It describes how God is asserting his authority in the lives of sinners through the redemption of their sin through Christ Jesus, the promised Messiah. Is God ruling and reigning in your life? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Jesus commands us to say this when you pray. Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is a prayer that I pray all of the time. And I had to pray it over myself too because a lot of times my will I find, is in conflict with God's will. And I have to say, God, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. God, assert your redemptive rule and reign over all of the earth through Christ. That's what we're praying when we say that. We're saying, God, I want you to assert your redemptive rule and reign over all the earth, over all creation through Christ. That's, that's the Messiah's heart. To seek and save that which was what? Lost. What are we lost in? We're lost in our trespasses and our sins. We're lost when we rejected Christ, when we were separated from him. We were born into sin and we had to be redeemed. In another passage, we were commanded to what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, I thought it was funny, actually, this morning on the YouVersion app. I have it notify me every morning at 6 o'clock what the verse of the day is. And that verse happened to be the verse of the day this morning. So as I'm driving to, to church at 6 in the morning, it pops up on my watch and says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm teaching today. It was kind of funny. God is good. But seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and what? All of these things will be added unto you. What does that mean? What does that prayer actually mean when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What are we asking God for? Because I think a lot of us are confused when we pray these things that we don't actually know what we're asking for. Are you seeking the redemptive rule and reign in Christ in every area of your life? 
Because everywhere in the Bible that you now see kingdom of God, you can put this definition in place of it, the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ. So when we're saying seek first the kingdom of God, we're seeking first the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ in every area of our lives. And then what? All of these things that are in our hearts, that are in our mind, that we need to get done and accomplished, will be what? Given to you. All of these things that are heavy on our hearts will be made plain. It'll, it'll work out. Mark 10, verse 15. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean? Have you accepted, like a child, the, the, rule, of, the rule and reign of God in Christ in your life? Have you, like a child, accepted the rule and reign of God through Christ in your life? We see, and I'm going to close with this thought, the kingdom of God is multifaceted. What do I mean by that? There's kind of two realities, if you will, to the kingdom of God. There is the present reality of the kingdom of God, that it's, it's here. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, it is right now, the time is fulfilled. That was a kairos moment in the Bible. That's a, the Greek word for the time is the most opportune right now for what? For the kingdom of God to advance. It's an opportune moment for the kingdom of God to advance. So there's the present reality that the king is here. The kingdom is advancing. Well, how do we see that? Well, we see that because God is putting in the hearts of young men and women and old men, men and women to go to the nations. We saw that with Luke Sullivan, to go to the nations to seek those who were lost. That's the missionary heart of our God that we love and we serve, that saved us, amen? That's the present reality that the king is here, his kingdom is advancing. Jesus rose from the dead, he walked on water, he healed the sick, he casted out demons. And he rose himself from the dead so that we might experience new life in his name. So yes, the kingdom of God is here, it is present, it's alive in you. And yet, there's this future realization to the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because we still experience today death and dying and suffering and pain and sickness. We see it all around us. You know, it was interesting. I was talking to, me and my wife were in the process of buying our first home, and we were talking to a, uh, just a guy that came to check out the house to kind of give us the, the lowdown, what we needed to expect to fix and all these, all these sort of things. And found out he's a believer in his 50s. We found out his wife had died when she was 34 of cancer. And then just a couple days ago, his mom had died of cancer. And we're kind of like wrestling with this through him, with him, you know, because he believes in, in Jesus Christ as his Messiah, as his King. But we're wrestling through this pain of losing a loved one, of being separated from them, knowing that the kingdom of God is actually here, and yet it's not fully here, if you will. Why do I say that? Because what's our hope? We have the hope of heaven. It's the here but not yet. Jesus is coming back. We have a promise in Christ that Jesus is coming back. And until he does, we're still going to have to wrestle with the sin and the brokenness in this world. Why are we still sitting here breathing alive today? Because God has a plan for you to advance his kingdom. Because God does not want any ear to not hear the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us while we are still breathing. That's why we're still here. 
Jesus is talking about this in this parable. The kingdom will be officially consummated when he returns. When he returns, what's our hope? That he's going to make a whole new world completely free of sin. That's good news. That our bodies today that are falling apart, that are suffering from illnesses and diseases and all sorts of things, they're going to be made new. That's good news, amen? That this is not our eternal state. Revelation 20, it's like the last book in your Bible, like the last page in your Bible. Jesus says this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus said he's coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years, and what are we supposed to be doing? Are we doing the work of advancing the kingdom of God, of growing the kingdom of God, the disciples were confused about this. They asked him, Jesus, is right after his resurrection, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? No, he said, the Father has set a fixed time that he, only he knows. But what I'm going to do now, Jesus said this right in the book of Acts, what I'm going to do now is send my Holy Spirit to be your helper so that you can do what? You can be my witness. Where? Throughout the entire world. So I'm going to ask you guys this, this morning, family, how are we doing in that? How are we being a witness? How is your life being a witness? How's it going? Are we being that witness? Is there, is there evidence of new life in us? We're supposed to be his witnesses all over the world proclaiming what? That the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news of everlasting life can be found in only one name, in only one way, the name of Jesus Christ. Today, God is advancing his kingdom, and you are here today. And if you believe in his name, we are here to advance his kingdom in Valley Center and the rest of North County. Amen? Romans 14, 6 says, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdom of the world. It's actually opposing there's going to be two different desires for us. There's going to be, as believers, there's going to be a desire for righteousness, for righteous living that's always going to be there. We're going to feel really dirty and bad when we do sin. That's why God gives us forgiveness. But there's always going to be that pull and the shininess of the kingdom of this world that has different things to offer. Jesus said this in Acts 1 and verse 7. He said, It's not for you to know the seasons that the Father has put in his own authority. But you are going to receive what power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What does that mean for us? That we are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in where? Our homes, to our families, to Valley Center as a community, to Escondido, to uh, San Marcos, to Vista, wherever you are. We are called to be his witnesses and go out. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. That, and that's, where, that's kind of where I wanted to end today is, is just asking that question is, if God is advancing his kingdom, what are we doing? See, God's not done advancing his kingdom until he comes back. And until God is done with you, as a believer, you're going to be here. 
You're going to wake up tomorrow. You're going to be given another day. I just pray that we would not waste a single second to be able to share good news. The good news that, that Jesus saves, that Jesus can take us out of our sin, that he can transform our lives. So next week, we're going to be looking at the heart. Next week, we're going to be looking at the heart and the different kinds of hearts. And then we're going to be looking at what is our response to the Word of God that is in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, as we close this this morning, Lord, at your Word, I pray that you would stir in us, in our hearts, Lord, a fresh desire for the nations, Lord, a fresh desire for lost souls to find you. Lord, a fresh desire to pray for those in our lives that don't yet know you, that they could be transformed by you, that they could receive eternal life. Lord, there are lost people all around us. Lord, and I pray that we would be obedient to the calling that you've given us, Lord. I pray that you'd open our ears to hear your voice speak to us, God. To tell us who we should be ministering to, God. To make clear, to open our eyes, to see the people that are right in front of us that maybe we've missed for for a long time, Lord. That maybe we we haven't asked if they need prayer for anything. Maybe we haven't asked how they're doing with their their family or how how they're coping right now, Lord. That we would be people as part of your kingdom that care and love the world. We love them so much, Lord, that we are willing to go out of our way to be sent to the far reaches of Guatemala, Lord, wherever you would send us, even if it's just to our next-door neighbor, that we would be faithful, Lord, to hear your calling. We'd be faithful as part of your kingdom, Lord, to spread it, that we would bear much fruit. I pray these things in Jesus' good and precious name. The church said, amen.